a desert blossoming, a vast wilderness of parched land steeping, a lattice of dry creek and riverbeds streaming and glittering, starched bones rising, pulsing, breathing. The valley of the shadow of death meets the high noon sun, opening a highway to the faithful while the bandits and robbers flee. Like the crocus, it shall blossom, Isaiah prophesies. Israel's native version flowers just this time of year, with white and yellow hues and tender, narrow petals. It flourishes in rocky soil and rises in large swaths to cover the landscape with beauty as though God had given Monet free license to paint the earth. A scenario of death and hopelessness gives way to an ecology of joy. A contaminated and deadly land transforms into a place where the ransomed and redeemed may sing again with joy. The desert wilderness of all places becomes a place where sorrow and sighing flee. Isaiah's prophecy actually reminds me of the creation story, part two, that is, of the creation story in Genesis, when there were no plants, no herbs, the scripture says, no rain. And all of a sudden, across the dry ground, there springs up a stream that courses across the face of the ground. God scoops up some of the mud and creates a human being with it. But that's not all. He plants a garden on the other side of the creation of this human being and plants the human being in the garden and calls it Eden. And what strikes me when I return to this text is just how symbiotic or intertwined life is with life. We don't begin with a human being. We begin with watered earth then the human, then the garden, and then the human tends the garden just as the garden tends to the human. And you cannot see one without the other. One cannot live without the other. There is no separating them. And this vision reminds me of a New York Times short documentary I, I recently saw. It was directed, written, directed by none other and I didn't realize this until I looked up the name. None other than Jeremy Seifert, an Asheville native. I can look this up and see and learn all about what he calls the church forests of Ethiopia. In the documentary, you see a camera hovering over a vast landscape. Beautiful Ethiopia, which has been reduced by agricultural practices over the last century to a near wasteland, desert, dry, parched, except for little plots of old growth forests. And at the center of each plot, there is a church. And a forest ecologist speaks 
about Ethiopian Orthodox Christians who have said for centuries, a church, to be a church, should be enveloped by a forest. It should resemble a garden of Eden. And so the camera hovers and you move from oasis to a oasis, church to church. And without these churches, the old growth forest would be gone. And the forest guards the churches just as the church guards the forest. You can go inside the churches and see the paintings and scriptures written on the wall, uh, murals, and they're all made from the leaves and the roots and the barks and the flowers from the forest just outside its doors. The church, the ecologist said, is in the forest, and the forest is in the church. This practical vision of Isaiah comes into full expression in these church forests of Ethiopia. It's a practical vision Isaiah has, as well as a prophetic one. It is an anticipation of the second coming in communities where creation and creatures flourish together. The church forest of Ethiopia live between what is and what is to come. And as they do so, they become harbingers of joy. Prophetic forerunners, if you will. Signs pointing ahead to the joy set before us. These little church forests we might call ecologies of joy. Isaiah, remember, is speaking to exiles, though, to war-torn, weary people, trapped in Babylon and longing to come home. Isaiah tells them that their homeland will be restored and they will be returned to it, and they will be so overjoyed to find themselves in this flourishing place of milk and honey restored that they will sing anew, bursting into song as they return but in the meantime, they're injured, they're maimed, they're blinded, and worse, after the war and the violence that took them away from their land and displaced them, now they come back on stretchers with crutches, wheelchairs, and hoarding balms for their skin and for their ailments. But Isaiah says, these blind will see. These deaf will hear, these lame will walk, and these speechless will burst into song again. The broken bodies are made whole again. We can imagine just this very scenario amongst our own people, can we not, in our own communities? A soldier steps off the airplane, his head is bandaged, he carries crutches, limbs amputated, and he longs for a return, not only to home, but of the way his body always was before. He is broken. We know a young woman whose life was full of despair. She leaned into the pills for a deliverance from pain again and again and again, and her life began to erode further, losing everything, home, family, future, broken. An elder gentleman 
begins to lose his sight and his hearing. And all of a sudden, one day he wakes up to realize that the young strapping man he once was is now dependent on others, broken. But Isaiah says, in these ecologies of joy, we see signs that broken bodies will be made whole again. And as we look to the second coming, even in the present, we see these signs and they are opportunities for joy. Do you ever wonder, though, why God gives us such fragile bodies? Why did God do this? Why did God design these bodies so intricately and with so many opportunities to fail? And how frustrated we are, how sad we can become. What a struggle it is when we find ourselves with ever new and encroaching ailments as the ravages of old age plague us and take from us our loved ones. Is Isaiah's prophecy of a restoration of land, of creation and creatures, really a prophecy? Or is it just a mere fantasy? I remember being in divinity school. One of my students, life was falling apart for her. Her name was Melissa and she was always late to class, turning in an assignment slate with every excuse, sending me emails. I can't be there because of this and that. And I was beginning to become suspicious that she was just playing games. I came to find out more of her story and, and found out of her despair and her depression and her loneliness and feeling like she just wasn't good enough for this work. And that her call the flame of her call had been reduced to a dwindling, kindled, tiny little candle. The story developed and it turned out that one day she was rolling through the hallway in a wheelchair that she did not start the semester in. And one of the other professors was walking beside me and we encountered Melissa and she looked at me and she looked at him and she said, will y'all pray for me? And Professor Turner got down on one knee, took her hand, put his other hand on her shoulder and began to pray. And he prayed the most eloquent prayer. He prayed for her strength, for her renewal, for her restoration. And, and I would never tell you a story at least not from the pulpit. I am not making this up. Six months later, I saw Melissa in the chapel, bursting into song with joy. No wheelchair. No crutches. No frown. No despair. I don't know. But my mind went back to that prayer and the power of it and the way that her tears fell and her reception of the power of God in that moment. I have to wonder, is Isaiah's prophecy real 
or a fantasy? I lean into the former. How many times as a pastor I have seen someone forlorn, shaken, broken, giving up to despair, and then they have an encounter. There's a change. A hard heart is softened. They begin to take one step and put it in front of the other, and all of a sudden, they become a sign of God's presence and healing and restoration. It happens. When I think about ecologies of joy, I think not only of communities long ago, I think not only of communities in Africa, I think also of this community. I think of First Baptist Church of Asheville as an ecology of joy. I'm taken back to something that the preacher John Claypool once said to the other preacher, um, Barbara Brown Taylor, one of the great preachers of our time, Claypool asked Taylor uh, to come and preach in his stead. And she said, well, what would you like me to come talk about? And he said, just come tell us what is saving you now. When I think about my own answer to that question, if someone were to ask me that, Mac, just come and tell us what is saving you now. I would point to you and to all the others that I know who together make up for me an ecology of joy. Places where there is singing and laughter and hope and overcoming of suffering. Places where light shines in the darkness even however dimly it may shine. I think of children leading us and me. I think of young and old dreaming dreams together. I think of Scripture coming to life in the flesh, in people, and in their stories, in their homes, around their tables, in their Bible study classrooms, even in the parking lots, even in church parking lots. That was a joke. I think about those who long for friendship and find it here or anywhere. I think about those friends that I know here and elsewhere who pray for others. And it gives me the confidence to say when someone who is a member of our congregation who is sick tells me, I'm sorry I can't be in church on Sunday, I say not to worry. Others will be there on your behalf and will be praying for you and will be missing you. I think of those who even carry sighs too deep for words in their prayers. When they retire to their chambers or when they close the closet door behind them and get down on their knees in the dark and pray and ask God why, and they cannot bring themselves to articulate a prayer because they are so sad and grieving. That even there, the Spirit intercedes for them just as we see the Spirit intercede for any one of us who picks us up, who holds us in the palm of God's hand, who walks alongside us and leads us to greener pastures. For a church to be a church, 
I say it must be enveloped by joy in such a way that one day the only thing that will surprise us is not that there is a restored Eden, just the details of how beautiful it is will leave us speechless. So I say to you, thank you for being among those people, to me and to one another, who provide an answer to the question, what is saving you today? And I echo the prophecy of Isaiah, not a fantasy, to say to those of you who may be fearful of heart in this season, be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming, and he will save you. Wait for it with strength and endurance. God does not give up on God's promises.